Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. I remember one day when I was about 25 years old, I was talking with a friend and she mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment. And I said something like, yeah, yeah, of course, it's so important. And I think from my response, my friend could tell I had really only vaguely heard of it. And so she said, you know, it didn't pass. You know that, right? She told me that the Equal Rights Amendment was up for ratification in the 1970s, but it didn't pass. And to my horror, she then told me that the ERA hadn't passed, at least in part because of the leadership of a group of Christian women, and that our own church had been instrumental in it not passing. I felt so betrayed. I remember Literally, I remember where I was sitting, what I was wearing, and I couldn't make sense of it. Looking back, it's kind of embarrassing for me to admit that at age 25, I didn't know the Equal Rights Amendment wasn't already a part of the Constitution. But apparently, I'm not alone. Many, many Americans to this day have heard of the Equal Rights Amendment, but They don't know that many states still won't ratify it and that they may live in a state or belong to a church or organization that opposes it. So this is an incredibly important essential text that we're covering today. It's really short, but it has a long history that is still unfolding as we speak. And I'm really grateful to have two experts here to clear up misinformation and help us understand this critical piece of legislation. My reading partners today are Emily Bell McCormick and Kelly Whited-Jones, co-chairs of Utah ERA Coalition. They represent a coalition of individuals as well as local and national groups that have been working on the Equal Rights Amendment for decades. Their mission is to educate elevate the role of women, and to ratify in Utah. So I am thrilled to welcome you today, Emily and Kelly. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We're so excited to be here. So the last step before we actually dig into the Equal Rights Amendment is to learn a little bit about the author. And the author of the Equal Rights Amendment was Alice Paul. So I'll take this part and just introduce us to who this woman was. Alice Stokes Paul was born on January 11th, 1885. She was a descendant of William Penn, who was the Quaker founder of Pennsylvania. She grew up in the Quaker tradition of public service, and she first learned about women's suffrage from her mother, who was a suffragette and would sometimes bring her along to suffragist meetings. In 1901, Alice Paul went to Swarthmore College, and she graduated with a bachelor's degree in biology in 1905. She then earned a Master of Arts from the University of Pennsylvania in 1907 after completing coursework in political science, sociology, and economics. She then went to Birmingham, England to, to continue her studies and took economics classes from, at the University of Birmingham while earning money doing social work. She first heard Christabel Pankhurst speak while she was at Birmingham, and when she later moved to London to study sociology and economics at the London School of Economics, she joined the militant suffragist group, the Women's Social and Political Union, led by this woman, Christabel, and her famous suffragist mother, Emmeline Pankhurst. So Paul joined the movement in London, and she was arrested repeatedly during suffrage demonstrations, and she served three jail terms. 
And I have to share just a couple of these stories because they're just so interesting. So on one occasion, Alice Paul and other local suffragists made plans to protest a speech by the Minister of Foreign Affairs. His name was Sir Edward Gray. So for a week prior to this speech that was planned, they spoke with people on the streets to promote knowledge about why they were protesting the cabinet member. And then at the meeting, um, after this man, Sir Edward Gray, after he discussed this proposed legislation that he claimed would lead to prosperity, Alice Paul stood up and exclaimed, quote, well, these are very wonderful ideals, but couldn't you extend them to women? End quote. So at that meeting, police responded by dragging her out of the meeting and through the streets to the police station where she was arrested. And as planned, because they had done all this groundwork before of like kind of planting the seeds of understanding what the issues were prior to the speech. So the, the public that was there viewed this act as a public silencing of a legitimate protest. And it resulted in an increase, an increase of press coverage and public sympathy for the cause. So those were just classic civil disobedience tactics. Gandhi used them later and Dr. Martin Luther King and others in, in the American civil rights movement where you provoke the other side to do something, you know, really either egregious or just very obvious to demonstrate how far they're willing to go. And, and then you win the public to your side. Another example is um, before a political meeting at St. Andrew's Hall in Glasgow in August of 1909, Alice Paul camped out on the roof of the hall so that she could address the crowd below. And when she was forced by the police to come down from the roof, the crowds rallied to support her. And so when she and her fellow suffragettes attempted to enter the building for the meeting, they were beaten by police and they were taken into custody and the crowds tried to protect the women and then they gathered outside the police station demanding the women's release. So these tactics were really, really um, effective in getting the public um, to be more aware of their movement and to be on their side. After returning from England to the United States in 1910, Alice Paul earned a PhD in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. Her dissertation was entitled The Legal Position of Women in Pennsylvania, and it discussed women's suffrage as the key issue of the day. I have to throw in here, reading about Alice Paul, she's probably the most educated woman of her time I have ever heard of. I am so impressed and want to like dig into how she managed to um, become so educated at a time that, that women really did not do that. Um, so impressed. And actually, now, as we're continuing, she later received her law degree after her Ph.D. at the Washington College of Law at American University in 1922. She then earned a master's in law in, in 1927 and a doctorate in civil law from American University. So, I mean, even on top of that, I'm just kind of blown away by her. One of Paul's first big projects was initiating and organizing the 1913 women's suffrage procession down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., the day before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. This was designed to put pressure on the future President Wilson because the president would have the most influence over Congress. Um, people who were there reported it was just an incredibly inspiring event. Once suffrage was achieved in 1920, 
Then Paul and some members of the National Women's Party shifted their attention to the next hurdle, and that was constitutional guarantees of equality through an equal rights amendment, because, of course, the right to vote does not guarantee the right to equal justice under the law, equal access to opportunity, equal education, equal pay for equal work, etc., And so Alice Paul and others um, knew that they would need an amendment to the Constitution. So Alice Paul wrote the Equal Rights Amendment, and she delivered it to Congress in 1923. For 20 years, it did not pass. And in 1943, the amendment was renamed the Alice Paul Amendment. It had been the Lucretia Mott Amendment initially, but they named it after Alice Paul in 1943. And at that point, its wording was changed to the version that still exists today. So, um, Emily, can I have you tell us what that current version is? What does the Equal Rights Amendment actually say? Yeah, absolutely. So the Equal Rights Amendment, as it stands today, says it's 24 24 words long. It says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And it's, it's interesting. It's actually written in three different sections, this amendment. There's that part, which is the meat of it. That's what the amendment says. There's a section two that basically says Congress shall have power to enforce this. Um, and section three, which says this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. We'll go into that in a minute. Um, and, and a couple little derivatives of this, beginning with the 113th Congress, um, the text to that bill that was introduced in the House of Representatives has a slightly different um, text. It says women shall have equal rights in the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. And then goes on to say equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So the addition of that uh, first sentence to specifically name women in the constitution it's because women are not named at all. Even when we got the right to vote with the 19th Amendment, it doesn't say women. It mentions the word sex. So men, men is, you know, is stated often, but, but that is the first time that women is stated. But, uh, but the ERA really is just those 24 words, 24 words that have caused a big ruckus over the years. Okay, thanks, Emily. So, so normally on the podcast, I would say the year that our book was published or the date that a certain article was signed into law. But although we have a date that the text was authored, 1923, as we mentioned at the beginning, we still don't have a ratification date. So this story is still ongoing. So let's dive into the history a little bit. And Kelly, I'm wondering if you can tell us what happened with the Equal Rights Amendment since 1923 when it was authored. The amendment has been introduced in every Congress since it was first presented, and it was presented by Susan B. Anthony's nephew, who was a Republican, and by a future vice president of the U.S., Charles Curtis, in a bipartisan bill. It has faced the same challenges that it faces today. So through, through, from 1923 to 1960, it's been blocked in committee and not brought to the floor, or it would pass in one house, but not the other. Um, In the 1940s in particular, women were more engaged than ever in this effort. Um, There is kind of a perception, though, that things went dark on the ERA, but this idea is really unfounded. The ERA has really never lacked the support of tenacious women across our nation. The League of Women Voters took some time to sign on. Initially, they um, 
until just after the ERA passed Congress in 1974. But once they realized the positive impacts of the amendment for women, they saw First Ladies, Betty Ford, Lady Bird Johnson, Rosalind Carter, they all championed the ERA. And the league reversed their decision, and they've been ardent supporters ever since. Just this year, the National League awarded a grant to our League of Women Voters of Utah to support ratification efforts here. And they put together a postcard campaign to our senators and a video detailing Utah's complicated history with passage. It's a very sobering and honest look at why ratification didn't pass when it was proposed here in 1977. And it's really transparent about the role that the LDS Church took, much like the efforts of Prop 8 that you saw in California actively working against gay marriage. Where Mormon women had supported fundamental rights in 1940, in the 1970s, they were given callings to oppose it. They were told to speak out against it, and they were even bused to conventions to vote no. A religious committee was formed specifically to stop progress for women. Many of the women who work for the ERA today have mothers that were told to actively oppose it in the 1970s. That's amazing. Can I ask like a clarifying question? What happened kind of more broadly in the United States um, in the 1960s and 70s? I just watched Mrs. America, which I learned a lot from. I thought it was a fantastic series um, about the ERA. And it talks more about like Phyllis Schlafly versus the women's libbers. So could you tell us a little bit about that? You bet. The aim of Phyllis Schlafly was really to preserve a traditional role for women. Even as she herself worked outside the home as an attorney, she was a contradiction in terms in a lot of ways. She would bring eagle form propaganda attached to baked goods to the legislators to highlight her role as a homemaker, even though she didn't fit that traditional mold herself. Um, She really capitalized on a fear during that time period of change that was brought on because of progressive equal rights movements um, during that it was a time period of the civil rights. And with a, a large group of people, her ideas really did resonate. She effectively said women want to remain on the pedestal in the gilded cage and be protected. We actually hear many of these arguments still being made today. She identified this kind of need in the marketplace, right? She aspired to some political power and to some um, um, just fame, I guess. And she did a great job because she came in and said, hey, here's this opening in, in this political arena where I can show, you know, mostly almost exclusively men in Congress. Hey, let me just give you this to lean on. Let me give you permission to say that women don't want this, women don't mm-hmm. want equality, which not only gives you some, you know, um, it gives you some flexibility in protecting your position. So it, it allowed these men who had power to say, hey, it's not me saying that I don't want women to be equal. There's a woman saying. So it's kind of the perfect scapegoat for men. These men were probably not married to women who were burning their bras and mm-hmm. shaking their fists. And that's the image that, Phyllis Schlafly helped create around the women's movement and that the media created, you know, the media is going to glomp onto like, what is the most entertaining thing here? Mm -hmm. Well, they're not looking at me and you, we're kind of boring and vanilla, right? They're looking at people who are really taking this to an extreme. That 
60s, 70s really did a number on equality for women. And it's because we had a very shiny figure come in, a shiny political figure come in claiming to be a, you know, a, a woman who wanted traditional things, but doing the opposite, like Kelly pointed out. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what were some of the counter arguments that she and others were um, making at the time and why were they effective? They were really effective at slowing down the progress that was being made. One of the arguments was it would take women out of the home to work and thus destroy the traditional family. Um, Another argument was that it would bring about gay marriage, something that has happened due to societal shifts in the last decade, but all happened without the Equal Rights Amendment. Another argument was that the ERA would legalize abortion. But we do know that abortion became law in 1973 because women were dying from unsafe procedures. The Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade under medical privacy law and not due to equal rights law. The fourth argument was that under the ERA, able-bodied women could be drafted to serve our country. And this was the only argument that really had any merit back in the 1970s. However, the issue has become more moot over time for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't staff wars like we used to. Another reason is that the all-male draft has already been declared unconstitutional in a Texas court in 2019 and have always been able to be drafted. I, think, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but our Constitution doesn't differentiate between men and women when it talks about drafting armies. We nearly did draft women in World War II. And I think probably the most important argument in regards to this service in the armed forces is that women are currently serving in every arm of the armed forces, in every capacity. What they lack is protection under the law for advancement and protection against sexual violence. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. Such great points. Okay, so to go back to the history in um, like the 60s and 70s, What has been happening since the ERA had kind of like this big defeat on the the Congress floor in the 1970s? What's been happening since then? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit on the word defeat because we are not (laughs) we are not defeated now. Um, But when the ERA fell three states short in 1979, they petitioned Congress to extend the timeline three more years until 1982. Congress has the power to extend and even remove the arbitrary timeline. The OLC opinion issued under the Carter administration back in the 1970s said that the timeline could be extended if Congress agreed, and that is what happened. So timelines for amendments aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Some amendments have them, and some don't. Congress has all the power here, so with amendments, Congress can really do whatever it wants. It's not bound by what another Congress has done. So, you know, in legal terminology, sometimes you have to rely on precedent. So what was done before you have to do, that's not true with amendments. So this Congress right now can do whatever it would like to in terms of the timeline. And and in fact, there are efforts to remove it. So why did it stall? Well, this is where Eleanor, Eleanor Schmiel and Gloria Steinem, who are still working for women's equality, they really contradict the depictions of Mrs. America, the documentary. Hmm. They suggest that the insurance companies realized that if women were equal, if women were working in greater numbers, they would have to insure them too. 
And so there were cultural reservations, obviously, from Phyllis Schlafly and, and Emily said it very well, that, that in some ways those efforts were really genius, but they weren't the only consideration. There was a powerful financial incentive not to advance the ERA. Those same women's groups that were active prior to passage, they really kept working on it during this time period. They didn't stall. In Florida, in South Carolina, in Illinois, women never put it down. In the early 1990s, the main women's groups that were involved, including the National Organization of Women, met and voted on how to go forward. One idea was the three-state approach. Another idea was the start over ERA, and that would have explicitly included all women with no exceptions. And they were both talked about and debated, and ultimately the three-state approach won the vote. So we were so close to being done in that it was decided we would finish what we had started. And so the work continued until 2017 when a phenomenal black gay woman, a veteran who worked for the Pentagon, Nevada Senator Pat Spearman, and my personal Shiro, <laughs> sponsored mm -hmm. and won ratification in Nevada. And the next year, a white male pro-life Republican, Steve Anderson, passed the ERA in a very tight vote in Illinois. Why did he run the ERA? Because the Eagle Forum gave him a flyer. And as an attorney, he went through it and he, he knew that they were saying things about the ERA that were just were not factual, that were not legal facts. And it made him really angry. It fueled his passion, ignited his passion. He really wanted to fix that, that misinformation. And, and then in 2020, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And there was, that was a Herculean effort. They had to flip their entire state to blue in order to make that happen. But they did make history for women that day. In Utah, our efforts really formally revived in 2016. So we were watching what Nevada was doing, one of our neighboring states. And we, we had an amazing march, the largest group protest at the Capitol that we have ever had during the Women's March in a snowstorm. So if picture this, you know, over 10,000 women marching up, uh, up a steep incline up to the Capitol building in a snowstorm um, to advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. Senator DeBacchus is the one that, that helped us to run that bill. And we've been working every year since then. Our most recent sponsors, Senator Reby and Representative Kwan, have both said we're not going away. Women are not going to stop working for equality. Okay, so another question I have, I guess, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to ask, like, really clearly, what would you say to people who ask just the simple question, why is the ERA necessary? So why um, do we need a separate amendment? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very valid question and one that we get constantly. There have been a lot of laws and policies put in place um, to help women gain equality, right? There are a lot of those things that exist in the United States. That said, every single one of those is changeable. The, the reason that we need this, the Equal Rights Amendment, is because it would be a permanent protection for women. Perfect. Um, do you mind if I add a little there as well? Please do, please do. When we think about the laws that we have, we're so grateful for what we have, but we also know that we can lose those protections, as Emily talked about. We've seen it happen. The ERA is fundamental. It's essential. And, and the way it works is it acts like a filter for federal laws to pass through before they become law. Mm 
So that's one of the ways, that's one of the key ways that it will change our laws. Um, it has the potential also, though, to bolster existing laws that protect women. So they can't be walked back. They can't be watered down like employment laws have been. If you want to say it really simply, women would be more likely to find justice for clear cases of sex discrimination. Yeah, that's so clear and so simple. And you would think it I would be hard pressed to even think of an argument against that. But I'm sure you get so many arguments against it all the time. One thing that keeps coming up um, for me when I mention it is uh, people who are say that um, there's kind of this nebulous fear of quote unquote, unintended consequences, that if it passes, there will be things that like that we can't even really think about that might be a, a consequence of this. So how would you answer that? Yeah, I think uh, if any of these people are familiar with policy generally, welcome to the game. That is how it is. They're always so I, I think the way that we answer that question typically is by saying, Every single time we push a piece of policy through, it doesn't matter if it's putting a traffic light at your neighborhood <laughs> corner. It doesn't matter if it's, hey, let's bring this new textbook in as a school board. We're going to vote to bring this textbook. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's like we're going to reform healthcare. Every single one of those policies at every single level of policy has unintended consequences, you know. But the reason that we implement any policy is because we believe that policy has, there's greater reason to implement that policy than to exclude that policy, right? Like, and, and so I think that this is a very fear-driven thought. And I, I believe the reality with the ERA is actually that the history is so dang long. Like if this came up this year, you cannot tell me this would not just get done, yeah, right? Like, yeah equality. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and even the way the 24 words that are the amendment there, they make perfect sense. There isn't, there actually isn't that much room for misinterpretation. It just says, Hey, the law is going to be applied equally regardless of sex. That's all it says. Mm -hmm. I, I do believe that we in America want the law to be applied equally regardless of sex. So I think if this came up today, it would kind of sail through. I may be oversimplifying it, but my gosh, we're dealing with almost a hundred years of history and people just cannot get their minds around it. But the reality is equality is more important. That is more important. And, and the fears of the unintended consequences of the past, those have, most of those have come to pass without this amendment. So it's time to move on and get this done. Yeah. And it's just, society growing up and as you say so eloquently breaking down patriarchy yeah. and understanding these things about it oh i love that and and yeah and as you guys pointed out these these societal steps have happened even though the era didn't pass so that was not a um a legitimate fear actually it's going to move forward either way it wasn't connected to the era it turns out Okay, another a quick question is just which states still haven't ratified the ERA? Yeah, they're, um, I'm just going to listen. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Utah. Um, within the last few years, uh, Illinois, Nevada, and Virginia had ratified. So you'll see a pattern with most of these states, they're uh, 
kind of those highly religious states, the South mm-hmm. and, and parts of the West. Okay. So my last question is, what can we do to support the ERA, whether we live in states that have ratified it already or states like in Utah that haven't ratified the ERA? What can we do? You know, the biggest thing is there is a national organization called the ERA Coalition at eracoalition.org. This national organization does a really good job of kind of keeping tabs on what's going on in all the states that have not ratified and also moving forward. So there are these two elements, states that have not yet ratified, there's work to do in those, but there's also work at a national level with some lawsuits and things that we mentioned earlier in the show. So if you're interested in becoming involved, the best thing would be to get on and check out what they're doing. They have weekly calls that you can join and then volunteer either at the national level or at a state level. If you live in one of those states, there's probably an organization working on this within your state, and that would be a good place to find it. Um, The other thing is you can support other states that have not ratified by getting involved in the organizations there. And this is really a legislative game, as we talk about a lot here um, in the state of Utah. It's reaching out to your legislature. It's helping them know that people still care about this and really working with whatever relationships you have there to get them to understand the issue more fully and not just kind of buy into the propaganda machine from the 1970s. Yeah. Well, Emily and Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. I have learned so much from you. I think um, this is such an important topic and I'm just super grateful for your insights and wisdom. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. We appreciate your work as well. Thank you for having us. 